Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Hi there. This is Neil Garfield, brought broadcasting from Deval County, Florida, this sixth day of February 2020. Get over your anger and get even or get ahead. <clears throat> Every judge is a person like you and I, who has opinions about just about everything. Every trial lawyer knows that each individual judge is friendly or unfriendly to one idea or another. If you remove everyone from the bench that has preconceived notions and opinions, there'd be no judges and no opportunity for justice. It's an imperfect system, and it's the worst, but it's better than all the rest. So we have to work with it for what it is. Of course, many have pointed out the potential for interference from bias caused by the fact that so many judges have their pensions, savings, and retirement funds tied up in bank investments and even investments in the very securitization schemes that are in dispute across the country. Frankly, I don't know how to use that or what to make of it or what to do with it. So I'm leaving that subject alone, at least for now. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Moral of the story, change your strategy, change your tactics, change your presentation, and be mindful of the feedback you're getting whether it sounds in the courtroom, facial expressions from the judge, or things expressed by the judge. Too many people just have a plan and they stick to the plan no matter what's happening around them. So that's what good trial lawyers do, and it is what any pro se litigant must do if they're going to win. The most common mistakes that I made when I was a young lawyer, and believe me, I made plenty, I see being repeated in many proceedings around the country. I'm now, I'll be 73 years old in a few days, and practicing law, what is it, 45 years or something like that. It makes a big difference when you've been doing it that long. Lawyers who are not making headway with the judge simply repeat themselves as though somehow the judge, 
on hearing the exact same thing that the judge rejected a moment ago will suddenly see the light. They don't, even if you are right. Lawyers and pro se litigants ask single questions without any plan or any follow-up to drill home points that are necessary to win the case. And then they argue at the end as though they had already proven their point. They didn't. They thought it was self-evident. It wasn't. And of course, the biggest mistake is lack of preparation, which includes lack of discovery, lack of research, lack of analysis, and lack of just thinking about the case and playing it out in your head about what you'll say and what the other side might say and how you could respond to that over and over again because you sharpen your argument when you do that. See, if you're just thinking about the case from the perspective of what might convince the judge to do the right thing as you see it, you're taking a step in the right direction. If you think we're doing the right thing, putting on this show, writing the blog, responding to your registration forms, please go to the homepage of the Living Lies blog and make a donation of $5 or more today. You'll be supporting in-depth webinars that are currently in production and need financing. So whatever you can afford would be helpful. Homeowners are famous for giving up or getting mad after a single setback in the courtroom. That's a very common thing where I see people out in the hallway and they're all pumped up and then things don't go exactly their way or it goes opposite to what they want. And the next thing you see them in the hallway, they're all dejected and all is lost. That's rarely the case. Don't get mad, get even, maybe get ahead. It's possible. I've done it, and so have thousands and thousands of other lawyers and even pro se litigants. And I had an inquiry today from a lawyer who actually has a judgment entered by a judge against the name that was used to attempt to foreclose on a mortgage. He has the judgment, which with interest now is worth about $100,000. His problem is he can't find any assets in that name, which is a certain, the name is a certain bank for a certain group of holders of a certain group of certificates issued by a certain named trust series without actually, of course, saying that there's a real trust in which case they wouldn't have to have all that gibberish. He has no assets on which he can levy the judgment <clears throat> because there never were any assets, there never was any trust, and the holders of certificates or notes did not receive any right, any title, or any interest to any debt, any note, or any mortgage. He has a valuable judgment that has no value just like the certificates issued to the investors and the notes issued by borrowers. 
all counterintuitive, but true. So I told him to take his judgment and either domesticate the judgment against the investment banks because they were only doing business under that name. There wasn't any real trust. Or to take them at their word as though there was a trust and levy against the trust against the loans claim, which they claim to be owned by the trust. We'll see what happens. I think it's going to be interesting if he does the second one because their defense is going to be, well, the trust doesn't own the loans. It doesn't own the debt. So you can levy all you want, but you're getting nothing, which is an admission that all the foreclosures conducted under that name were essentially fake, fabricated fraudulent, whatever word you want to use. You need more than law on your side. You need equity. And if you keep acknowledging the debt as due and you fail to convince the judge that the claimant is not real or that there is no valid claim on behalf of the claimant, then you will fail. You will also fail if your presentation does not at least raise the specter of corruption on the side of the banks. I say raise the specter without going all the way to prove the corruption. You only need to get so far as to raise questions in a judge's mind in order for him to apply the law as it is written. If the foreclosure is brought in in a name starting with the name of Bank of New York Mellon or U.S. Bank or LaSalle Bank, Bank of America Christiana or HSBC, there is no actual plaintiff. There is no actual claimant. Accordingly, there is no matter in controversy between two litigants. If you don't have two opposing sides... The court lacks jurisdiction over the case, the subject matter, and the parties. Unless opposing counsel can proffer an amendment to the pleadings that names an actual plaintiff appearing as a real party in interest, the case must be dismissed. So why is the case not dismissed? First of all, it's because nobody raised the issue. Don't assume that the judge has read every word on every pleading or every document. Trust me when I tell you that the judge skims because he or she must skim in order to keep up with an overbooked caseload. So unless you object and thereby draw attention to the fact that U.S. Bank is not the plaintiff and U.S. Bank has been named not for a trust but for unnamed certificate holders, the judge has nothing to think about. And once you let it slide, it's very difficult on any matter to get a judge to go back and revisit basic questions unless you have a very powerful jurisdictional argument. If someone is signing as authorized signer, that means 
they can say they're an authorized signer who is not attesting to the truth or accuracy of anything contained in the document. Or the document will contain vague, ambiguous phrasing so that they're not attesting to the truth of anything if they say they are attesting. Authorized signer is a cloak for plausible deniability, or at least arguable deniability, in the event that signer individually is sued. Which, by the way, I think is possibly a good idea. And Eric Holder, when he was leaving as Attorney General, said that we should look to hold the individuals responsible rather than just the companies. But if you don't bring it up, then they, then they are, in fact, the right signer, and they're authorized for the purposes of this case, in which you failed to object, you failed to bring it up. They signed, and whatever they signed has some facial validity. If you bring up the issue, then you're actually challenging the facial validity, saying that nobody actually signed with, who had the authority to sign. That's the basis of robo-signing. And if they're signing for a servicer, if this person who signed as authorized signer is signing for a servicer who is not authorized to act as a servicer, then it's up to you to say that they have not alleged that this company is an authorized servicer by whom it was authorized, nor did they provide any exhibit that shows that they were appointed or hired as a servicer by the owner of the debt who paid value for the debt. If you don't bring it up and object, then guess what? They are the servicer even if they're not. So they can play at being the servicer, and for purposes of your case, they are the servicer. And if this so-called servicer claims to be attorney in fact, it is up to you to object to that label. Everything in these cases is about labels, because all the labels are intended to be misleading, and they work if you don't object. So you need to object to that label of attorney in fact, saying there's no allegation that there even is a power of attorney in existence when it was signed and whether it's still valid and no allegation uh, or exhibit identifying the principle, no allegation identifying the source of its authority to call itself attorney in fact, no allegation identifying its powers as attorney in fact, and no exhibit showing any of the required foundation elements for one to be considered to have power of attorney over the matter at hand. It's all plausible deniability. If you say nothing, they don't need plausible deniability. You just ratified it. It becomes so even if it isn't. Those are the rules. Like it or not, that's our system. Trial practice is something like a tennis game. 
If someone serves the ball, you need to hit it, not criticize the way the ball or your opponent looks. If you don't hit hit it, the referee will call the point for your opponent, even if you're a much better player, even if you're much better dressed. If you don't hit the ball and keep your eye on it, you will never, ever win a single point. But even when challenged properly, judges are universally discarding the requirements of basic law because they think it leads to an inequitable conclusion. They would rather rule in favor of an inevitable conclusion by consensus with other judges. So your job is to focus the judge's attention on this one particular case and what's wrong with the claim? You and your lawyer may know that only a party who has paid value for the debt can, dis- can foreclose. But in a court of equity, the judge is stretching discretion to say that it's okay as long as the creditor behind the curtain gets paid. If you don't answer that, and sometimes it's stated outright, or sometimes it's inherent in the answers and reactions of the judge. If you don't answer, then the debt can be foreclosed on that premise. Your answer needs to be what creditor? Behind what curtain? What if that creditor is not getting paid? What if they're not a creditor? What if there is no creditor? Foreclosure is a court of equity. What you need to do is to appeal to that judge's sense of equity. And a sense of equity means what is fair. You must convince the judges that their bias in in the direction of the banks is erroneous and leads to unjust conclusions. Gradually, through persistence and persuasive presentation, you must move them off of their opinion that the banks ought to win, and the first place to start on that is by showing them that a bank is not the claimant. Just being called a bank is enough to implant in somebody's mind a whole bunch of things about who's bringing the claim and therefore what value the claim has and what merit. Where the foreclosure is brought in the name of a bank that is cited as trustee, it's easy. The trust or the holders of the certificates that are named as plaintiffs, it's the trust or the holders of the certificates that are named as plaintiffs. Remember that. So U.S. Bank, as trustee, is going to be stated either for the trust or as holders of the certificates. U.S. Bank is not the plaintiff. It's not the bank. It's the trust or it's the holders of the certificates. Basic black-letter law requires that the claimant pay value for the debt before they can start enforcement of the debt. 
at least in, in courts of equity and where foreclosure of the security instrument, the mortgage or deed of trust is involved. That's not necessarily true for enforcement of a note, but it is necessarily true for enforcement of the mortgage. And that's because of the jurisdictional requirement that the claimant must allege and prove financial injury to invoke the authority of the court to provide the remedy of restitution for an unpaid debt. But the judge still thinks it's a bank and still thinks there's a claim. And the judge doesn't want to give anyone a free house. So right or wrong, you need to get that judge to retreat or pivot. Stop complaining about it and do something about it. In short, over time, you must convince the judge that the homeowner should win and not just that the law allows the homeowner to win. The fact that you can quote law is good. It's necessary, but it doesn't necessarily get you over the finish line. So that means that if you're going to challenge the foreclosure on all the technical and jurisdictional grounds, you must, as a practical matter, contrary to all due process and legal requirements, at least raise the issue of whether this foreclosure will result in a payment of money to anyone who paid value for this loan. It isn't fair and it isn't due process, but you have to work with what you have, not with what you wish. You have the you have these older so-called trust names that are not were never trusts and certainly do not represent the owners of certificates and the certificates were never mortgage backed contrary to the label used by the banks but the operative term that I want to bring to your attention and you should bring to the court's attention is liquidation if your forensic examiner will tell you <clears throat> that this particular entity, if it ever was a legal entity, was liquidated in all events, then the word liquidation will have resonance in the courtroom because that's a definite word that all judges will understand. If the plaintiff, even if it did exist, has been liquidated, then there is no claim. And even the most biased judge in the world is not going to rule in favor of a liquidated entity. Not without somebody coming in and saying, we took over, which is why you have all of these changes in servicers and trustees and so forth to mask the fact that the entire securitization scheme was just a ruse to begin with. I agree that regardless of whether you closely examine the origins of the non-existent trust or examine the trust as though it actually existed, it still doesn't end up existing because there was nothing in it. Taking the opposition at their word and their, con and their own conduct, it seems clear 
<clears throat> in many of the older securitizations that they sued in the name of a trust that no longer exists. It was liquidated. And there are many capable forensic examiners out there who understand that concept. And that means, right, there are no longer any owners of any valid certificates for most of the old trusts which have actually been liquidated through settlements with the investment banks or so-called resecuritization. A dirty little secret that doesn't stop the banks from hiring lawyers to say they, they represent the trustee of the trust, knowing full well the trustee has no duties and never did, and the trust doesn't exist. And from saying that the trust owns the loan, which is totally false, and will get the proceeds of a foreclosure sale, knowing full well having represented the same named entity that it never received the proceeds of any foreclosure sale. No such thing is happening or ever happened in the name of that trust or any trust, and certainly any trust that never even had a bank account. So the foreclosure mills are starting foreclosure proceedings on behalf of holders of non-existent certificates who affirmatively appear to be non-holders at this time. What that does is it makes, the, makes foreclosure a weaponized scheme for revenue instead of restitution for an unpaid debt, which is a definable illegal act which may enable a claim under RICO and FDCPA and other things that will bring the original act uh, within the statute of limitations. So in foreclosure defense, you start at the beginning and work your way up. It's not a foreclosure for a bank. It's not a claim of the trust if, if they say it's a claim for the holders of certificates. And it's not a claim for the holders of certificates if they refuse to identify the certificates or the holders. And it's not a claim at all because the certificate holders, even if you produce the certificates and the holders, have no right to foreclose because they're not due any money from the borrower. They never were. That means Everything about the business records introduced to support foreclosure is fabricated, faked, forged, and contains a signature block in which the signer can disclaim any legal responsibility for what he or she signed. As for affirmative relief, it's an affirmative defense, I think. Uh, if it's an affirmative defense, I think that the law is pretty clear that the statute of limitations does not apply but you are limited in recovery to the amount of the claim against you. So if you prove RICO, conspiracy, fraud, misrepresentation, violations of FDCPA, quantum merit for undisclosed compensation arising from the securitization, the dual sale of the security of the certificates and the and the uh, the loan products, or even punitive damages for a mean-spirited campaign based solely on greed knowing that lives will be shattered, you can still get the statutory amount set for damages, but only a set-off against the amount awarded to the claimant. But 
in a new collateral lawsuit, I I think that because of possible problems with the statute of limitations, you need to clearly stake out a brand new conspiracy with the filing of documents invoking the process of foreclosure. I think that's the act. It's a pretty high bar. So you might be able to set, uh, sue on quantum merit or unjust enrichment, but you're going to have some statute of limitations because that dates back to the origination of the loan. So the answer is fairness as it is perceived from the bench, presented with the narrative from the banks that everyone thinks that a win for the homeowners of free house, a windfall that is undeserved and that troubles were caused by their eyes being too big for their wallets, well, turn it around. If the investment banks had followed the law, they would have disclosed everything honestly and then competed to offer incentives to investors and borrowers. They were already doing that, but the incentives they were offering did not take into account the actual risks of the deal to investors and the borrowers. This is similar to when the SNLs were competing for deposits and giving away toaster ovens. It turns out that both the investors and the borrowers were assuming far more risk as a result of the absence of risk on the part of the so-called lenders. Both the investors and the borrowers paid dearly. That's it for tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Back next week with more insight information and strategies to win in court. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.